0: I was brought back you know, to all the times in my life where my mom shared scripture with me and where I did rebel against God and where people did come into my life. And God just started revealing his grace to me like over and over and over again. Like remember this time, remember that time, remember this, remember that. And it just makes me fall to my knees and be like, oh my God.
1: You're listening to Altered Stories with Michelle Renee Gutch. Hello,
2: Altered Story Show listeners. Welcome to the Altered Story Show, episode 48 Rachel's 40 Miracles in 40 Days God's Story. Thanks for listening to the show today. This is Michelle Saunders Gutch, your Chief Storyteller host. Friends, I hope you all are doing well in the midst of all that is transpiring in our nation. I would like to take this moment and share some encouraging words from God's word that I hope will encourage your faith. Isaiah 41:10 tells us that we should not fear for God is with us and he will strengthen us and help us. No matter what is ahead friends, God Is with you, and you can rest in knowing that he is in control and at work. And we must make admission of that. We must rest and trust that God is at work. Friends, many of you know his ways are not our ways, but one thing is for sure he will never leave us or forsake us, even when we are in the most difficult circumstances. And you're going to hear that today. I'm excited to welcome my special guest, as I've shared earlier. Her name is Rachel Bruno. Rachel is a wife to her husband of 17 years and a mom to two energetic boys. After nearly four years of fighting for justice, she is now a public speaker and a voice for those who have been victims of family court and Child Protective Services. Rachel also holds a master's degree in business administration and founded a cybersecurity business along with her husband in 2010. Today, we are going to discuss in our conversation her inspiring God story that will encourage your faith when you encounter the unimaginable in your life. In the summer of 2015, Rachel's life changed drastically in unimaginable ways, friends, and it's unimaginable shortly after the birth of her second child. So hello, Rachel. Happy New Year, and welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning?
0: Hi, Michelle. I'm doing well. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me on and giving me the opportunity to share this with your audience.
2: Well, Rachel, can you share a little bit with my listeners before you actually share your God's story in more detail? Can you share a little bit about your faith background, like when you became a Christian and did you grow up in a Christian home? You know, just what brought you to faith? You're from Brazil, right?
0: Right. From Brazil. And I think, you know, my faith story started in the womb. (laughs) My dad was a pastor in Brazil. And my grandpa was also a pastor, his dad. I was born on the night of my father's inauguration at the church.
2: (laughs) Wow. So cool, Rachel. Yes. That's really
0: cool. Yeah. My dad was a a pastor. He was also a medical doctor and he was an obstetrician. And my mom was having contractions the night of the inauguration. (laughs) And my dad as a doctor, you know, he's telling my mom, he's like, okay, if it gets too bad, you know, if you feel anything, so-and-so is not going to take his eye off of you. You tell him and he will take you to the hospital. <laughs> but my poor mom survived the entire night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was born the next morning. So, yeah. So, I was born into this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, That's you know, of course, you have to make a personal decision. To have a relationship with God. And that did start very young. You know, my father passed away when I was nine months old Mm. in Brazil, shortly after, you know, the inauguration. He was killed by a drunk driver in Brazil. And my mom was now a 28 year old widow and single mother. And again, our lives, you know, switched over. And at that point, my dad had been to America several times. Yeah. And a lot of the pastors had been to Brazil due to the fact that he was one of the only people who spoke English at that time. He would Mm -hmm. translate a lot for the pastors. And one of the pastors here in Fremont, California, when found out that he had passed away, they asked my mom if she wanted to come to the States, to America, and come to Bible school. So two years later, after his death, they sponsored us. They gave my mom a scholarship to the Bible school. We lived with an American family. I mean, God just really took us under his wing and put all the right people in our lives. And as you will see, you know, this trend has continued in my life.
2: (laughs) Yes, I praise God and thank God for his faithfulness there to your mother and his hand of protection on you. And I love the fact that you said your faith story started in the womb because you know what? We are all knitted in the womb. And God knew us before, okay. you know, we actually were birthed, you know, from our mother's womb, yeah. but we are beautifully and wonderfully made. And uh, I can see that in you and I'm sure your, your boys. So I really do appreciate you sharing your faith story and kind of an, where that began. So that leads the listeners to kind of an understanding yeah. of, you know, maybe some of the warfare that was coming up against you as a result of your your faith background. So right. I know you've shared your story publicly, Rachel, with others. And, you know, every single time we share our stories, I have a story too as a childhood cult survivor. And every single time it's different. You know, every single time God works through our stories differently, there's a different audience. But what I would love to know from you, why you think, Sharing your story is so important.
0: You know, like saying that I grew up in a Christian home, you know, and as a child, as a teenager, you tend to resent that, right? In a way, you tend to resent it. You see it as a bunch of rules, like I can't do everything my family is doing or my, what my friends are doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, peer pressure. And my mom would always tell me, I don't care what they're doing. This is what the Bible says. This is what we're doing. And she would always plant those seeds, right, in my life, no matter what. Mm -hmm. throughout my life you know I rebelled I was a teenager I didn't want anything to do with the ministry I didn't want to go to church I did not want to like be placed in my father's shoes right because my dad in the ministry as a pastor and I'm the only child and you know I always felt this weird pressure by man right not by God but by man and I'm like I want I want to run. I do not want to be be in this at all. <laughs> right? yeah. and then things happen in your life. You know the enemy knows these weaknesses, right? The things that I say out of my mouth, he can hear. He knows, and he knows mm-hmm. how to how to you know get in there. And you know you're they don't like you. They don't love you because of you. It's because of your dad, right? And if your dad wasn't in this space, they they wouldn't care about you. You what do you who do you think you are, right? To even think that you're good enough to enter into the kingdom of God and that God is going to use you. Who are you? It's a lie. It's a big lie. The enemy has a stronghold on many, many as a result of that. The big lies. And then, you know, when everything shifted in this story in 2015, I was brought back, you know, to all the times in my life where my mom shared scripture with me and where I did rebel against God and where people did come into my life and, God just started revealing his grace to me like over and over and over again. Like, remember this time? Remember that time? Remember this? Remember that? And it just makes me fall to my knees and be like, oh my God, you know, I have been a fool. You know what a fool. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for having the family that I did, for having the upbringing that I did, and for having those little mustard seeds planted which sustained me through one of the hardest times in my life.
2: I think from what you're sharing, storytelling is so important because what it does is it really emphasizes things in your life that have transpired and especially the goodness of God. And it is a gift, not only to yourself, but it is a gift to those who hear your story, I'm sure, because of all of what you went through and how you come out stronger, and how you've come out where you are today. And it's such a blessing to see you as, you know, coming through such great adversity. And I think that's the thing that drives me to telling God's stories. Yes. Is that I want women to see victory. I want to see us come out victorious. Jesus came from, you know, the grave and resurrected for us to walk in victory. Because it opened up life eternal for us, right? Right. So it's precious. You know, it's just, it's our fate isn't final. I mean, God is on the throne and it's all encouraging. And I really thank you. I would love to know from you what one takeaway would be that you would like our listeners to glean from what you're going to share today. I mean, there's going to be a lot. But is there one takeaway that you want the listeners to resonate with from your story?
0: Growing up in church, we always hear, you know, Paul's words, his grace is enough, right? And they could take everything away from you, but God's grace is enough. And, you know, listening to that my whole life, I'm like, is it really? Is it really enough? And I can tell you, friends, you know, in a short period of time, I had my home taken away from me. I practically had my husband taken away from me. I had my children taken away from me. I had nothing, right? It was just me and God. And at that point, I really didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know what was ahead of the horizon. I had no idea. I just had to walk one day at a time, day by day, clinging to God, clinging to God. And at the same time, I was scared. I was sad, but I had hope. I was not you know, in desperation, I was not, I was not going crazy. Right. I knew his grace was enough. He showed me. He's like, look at this. You know, the world is going crazy around you. Like my life is falling apart, but I'm not falling apart. You know, I know who I am. I know who my identity is in Christ and his grace is enough. Well,
2: that's a beautiful message. And it's a perfect segue into now your God's story. So, Rachel, do tell my listeners where your God story of 40 miracles in 40 days began.
0: All right. Well, you know, we've shared a little bit already, but this all began in the summer of 2015 when I woke up on July 8th at around 4 o'clock in the morning to my seven-week-old son screaming. Okay, just screaming, 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 and I looked at the clock, I'm like, okay, four o'clock in the morning, it's either a diaper time or a feeding time. Now, a little background about myself, my own health. I've had epilepsy since I was about five years old. I have seizures, and one of the biggest triggers is sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So to all you moms out there, you know, if you have a newborn, you ain't sleeping. No, (laughs) it was my doctor's recommendation at the time when I had my second child that I get somebody to help me with at least the nighttime routine. So I hired a nighttime nanny that she would watch my son from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. And at this point, he's seven weeks old. She had been watching him since he was seven days old and four o'clock in the morning. You know, so I figured, okay, she's changing him. She's feeding him. Something's going on. Tried to go back to sleep. He stopped crying. And then five minutes later, he starts screaming again. This went on for probably about 20 minutes, on and off, off and on, on and off. And I'm like, okay, what what is going on? So I get up, I go to the bedroom. You know, she has the door partially opened and I'm sitting in the doorway and she has him in the crib swaddled. She's kind of rocking him and shushing in his ear, trying to calm him down. And he was not having it. I mean, he was just screaming. I'd never heard somebody scream like that. So she picked him up, put him on her shoulder, like in the burp position At that point, he stopped screaming, but he just looked really uncomfortable. So I asked her, you know, something happened. She showed me the empty bottle and she's like, I just fed him. He's really gassy. I said, okay, you know, fair enough. Babies get gassy. And at this point, I'm home alone. My husband is on a business trip in West Virginia. My 20-month-old son was sleeping across the hall. And I have the screaming seven-week-old. I'm like, last thing I want is to wake up the 20-month-old at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. So I told the nanny, you know, your shift is almost up. I'm not sleeping. He's not sleeping. So you go home and I'll, I'll take it from here. So she left and I took my son. I unswaddled him. I undressed him. I'm looking for rashes. I'm fever, you know, leaking from the nose, anything I can think of. And I gave him skin to skin. At that point, he stopped crying. I'm like, okay, you know, you just wanted your mommy. I put him on my chest in my bed and I dozed off. He dozed off. Next thing I know, it's seven o'clock in the morning and he's screaming again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, wake up. Last feeding was four o'clock, seven o'clock, you're hungry. So I tried to nurse him and he would not latch on. Like he just kept throwing his head backwards and just screaming like, I'm like, what is wrong with this kid? No, it was weird, but really no red flags for me. I guess I was kind of jaded thinking gassiness, colic, like, okay, maybe you don't want this because this is what gave you the the pain you're in right now. So I swaddled him, held him, and then my 20-month-old wakes up and he's in his crib screaming for mommy. So I go you know, lay down my seven-month-old son or my seven-week-old son. And he just starts screaming the moment I lay him down. As soon as I pick him up and put him on my shoulder, he's fine. So again, I'm like perplexed. I'm like, do you just want to be held? You know, I had no idea what was going on. Long story short, six hours later, without nursing, without napping, just nonstop fussiness, I could not put this kid down. And I call my mom. I'm like, mom, I don't know what's wrong with him. Can you please come over and stay with my older son so that I can take him to the pediatrician? She comes over. I give her to him immediately. I call the pediatrician. I tell him the symptoms and The pediatrician's receptionist said, we're not going to be able to see him until three o'clock this afternoon. And I said, he's been screaming since four o'clock this morning. He's not eating. I need to see somebody. And she said, well, then take him to the emergency room. So I hop in the car, all four of us, my mom, my baby, my older son, and my mom. And we head over to the emergency room. And of course, babies love to sleep in the car. You know, once we start driving, my son plonks out, no more crying, no more screaming, And I'm like, okay, great. You know, here, this overreactive mom going to the emergency room. But we got there, tell the receptionist what's going on, tell the symptoms. She did take me to the room right away, to the back room, took all his vital signs. Everything seemed normal. And again, at this point, he's not crying. He seems to be sleeping. I'm just thinking, you know, I don't know what the doctor is going to say. He takes me into the room, asked me to lay him down on the bed and he starts walking away. So I'm like, okay, they're probably going to give me Benadryl or something and tell me to go home. He stops right at the door, which is about 10 feet away from the bed. And he's just staring at my son, like laser focused at my son who's laying on that bed. And everybody in the room, everybody's quiet. Like there's just complete silence in that room. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is weird. And then he starts walking towards the bed. And when he starts walking towards the bed, he goes, places his hand right behind my son's ear, left ear, and he touches it. Then he asked me, did you feel this? I said, no. So he grabs my hand and he makes me touch it. Like, you feel that bulge? I'm like, yeah. He says, that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? It's like, it could be spinal cerebral fluid. It can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now. And as soon as he says that, about 10 personnel run into that room. And they start placing you know, the sensors all over my son, tubes all over my son. They raise up the rails on the bed and they start running down that hallway to the CT room. And I'm just in shock. I'm like, what the heck is going on, right? I went from gassy baby. Now all these people are running down the hallway with me. And as we're running down the hallway, his right arm starts twitching. And when his right arm starts twitching, they really run. And I look up at the nurse. I'm like, is this normal? She said, no. And then that was my first realization. I'm like, oh my God left side of the brain, right arm twitching, he's having a seizure. And first thing that comes to my mind is, oh my God, I gave it to my son. Like it's hereditary, it's genetic. And I just say a little prayer as we're running down that hallway. I'm like, dear Lord, please spare my son from having to live with this like I have. And it was just enough time to get there. They took him off, placed him on the CT machine. And the doctor told me to wait in the the waiting room when the results are back, we will let you know. Again, my mom is there, my 20 month old son bouncing off the walls. I'm texting everybody. My husband is on an airplane at this point and no idea what the heck is going on. And I just text my family, text my friends, and like everybody start praying. I don't know what the heck is going on. I just went from gassy baby to now he has fluid leaking out of his brain. So we're praying, and the doctors come, Miss Bruno. Yeah. They take me to the back room where all the monitors are. And the doctor tells me this is serious. I'm like, okay. Like This is the image, and it was a cranial fracture, and the fluid that's leaking is blood, and the brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now to see if we can drain the blood and fix the fracture. And again, all these personnel running all over the place, they're intubating my son, they're giving me the liability forms. Are you against blood transfusions? I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. So I sign everything, and off they go, wheeling away my seven-week-old baby into an emergency operating room for brain surgery. And I'm in shock. I'm like, I, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to do. I'm just there with my mom. And we're like, what just happened, right? And I think at that point, the word fracture didn't really resonate with me. I was thinking, you know, he's a newborn. Their craniums aren't completely formed yet. One of those fontels must have popped open. The bleeding, was it an aneurysm? You know, I'm thinking a million different possibilities. Never, ever did I think that this could have been done purposely or maliciously. So, you know, they go to the operating room about four hours later, the doctor comes, the neurologist comes and he says, okay, you know, we finished the surgery. Everything went well clinically. We were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. And my first question, is he okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? What, what, you know, what, where do we go from here? And the doctor said, honestly, we don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours due to his young age. And he was having seizures, constant seizures after the surgery, probably due to the irritation of the blood. So we have him in a medically induced coma right now. And we are going to monitor him very closely for the next 42, 48 hours. So we really don't know what to expect, basically. So I'm like, okay, no. So just breathing, taking it all in. And he takes me up to the PICU. And I see my seemingly lifeless baby. All right? Just laying there on the bed. If you've ever been to a PICU or a ICU, you know, all the glass, all the rooms are made of glass. You know, you could see everything. You could hear everything, everything echoing, the beeping, the machines, tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. And again, I touch my baby and I say another prayer. Say, oh, God, you know, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son. I will. Just please don't take him away from me. And at that point, I heard the Holy Spirit. He spoke to me and he said, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. I just had the peace that surpasses all understanding at that point. I prayed again. I said, you're right, God, he is yours. No better place for him to be than in your hands. So that step was a step of surrender, right? Mm -hmm. I had to surrender my son's life to God. And I did. I had peace. I hugged my mom. I went into logistical mode from that point, right? I'm like, who's going to take care of David? Where are you guys going to go? I'm obviously not leaving the hospital. I'm going to stay here overnight. I call my friend to take my mom and my son to her house to spend the night. I'm texting my husband who's on his way back from his business trip. He's coming straight from the airport to the hospital. And about an hour goes by when I hear a knock on the door. I look up and there's a man in the uniform, in a police uniform. And there's a lady with the clipboard and he opens the door, slides it open, said, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? And I thought it was weird. What is a police officer doing here? But I said, sure. Okay. He comes in. His first words out of his mouth is, Miss Bruno, what happened to your son was worse than getting shot in the head by a bullet. We want to help you figure out how this happened to your son. Will you help us? So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, sure. Of course. And again, I'm thinking, you know, why is he asking me for help? He must know it was the nanny. She was the last person that was in contact with my son. So I sit down and I talk to them. I tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning. And by this time, it's around nine o'clock at night. And he just keeps asking me, why didn't you call 911? I said, because I didn't know what was wrong with my son. I She told me he was gassy. Like, Why did you bring him to a hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? I said, because this is the children's hospital that I know. He's like, why did it take you so long to bring him to the hospital? I said, because I didn't know what was going on with him. I thought he was gassy. And he's just jotting everything down very casually. Then the social worker introduces herself. And she asked me, you know, do you have any other children? I, said, I do. What are their ages? Where are they? I tell her he's at my mom's house. And she asked me, is it okay if we go see him? And I said, yeah, he's probably sleeping by now. Like We're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. So again, me thinking I have nothing to hide, right? They're here to help me. These people are here to help me. I call my mom. I tell them, you know, the social worker is on her way. And she leaves the hospital at that point. The police officer stays with me, asking me where my husband is. When is he coming? Then he asked me if I could wait for the detectives, that the detectives would also like to speak to me. So I cooperate and I wait. And my husband arrives at about 10 o'clock from the airport. Police officer takes my husband to one room. He takes me to another room and asks me to wait for the detectives in the other room by myself. So in hindsight, we could kind of see what was going on. But at that point, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. The detectives show up at about midnight and they start interviewing me at that point. And they go on till probably two o'clock in the morning. So mind you, I'd been up since four o'clock the night before or the morning before. And now it's two o'clock in the morning. And I tell them, you know, I really have to get to sleep. You know, I don't want to have any seizures now. So, you know, if you want to continue this process later this today, I will be more than happy to do it, but I really need to sleep right now. And at this point, something had already happened and my husband knew about it, but he knew the stress that I'd been under. So he just gave me my medication. He told me to go to sleep. I went to sleep. I wake up at about 10 o'clock and he is just staring at me. My husband is just this blank look on his face and he's just staring at me. And my first instinct is to look at the bed, look at my son, my baby. I'm like, okay, the machines are beeping. He's alive. What? What's going on? And my husband says they took David. What do you mean they took David? Who? Where? How? And just so you know, David is my 20-month-old son. Yeah. And he's like, they showed up at your mom's house at two o'clock in the morning with the police officers, with three police officers, with the social worker, and they took David. And I'm like, she lied to me. She what? She said she was going to see if he was okay. She said she wasn't even going to wake him up. And I call my mom and my poor mom. You know, my mom is in tears. I'm like, what happened? She's like, they showed up here at two o'clock in the morning. They walked through the house. They opened the refrigerators. And she asked to turn on the light in David's room. I turned on the light. David wakes up, bouncy, happy little boy, ready to play. And the social worker says, we're going to take him. And my mom was like, no, you're not. And the social worker says, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. And you're going to go to jail. And my mom is like, mind you, the police officers are right there. Three armed police officers. They don't say a word. My mom's like, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And she says, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. And my mom is on the phone with my husband. This was at 2 a.m. while the detectives were interviewing me at the hospital. My husband is crying on the phone with the social worker. Do not do this. You do not have permission to do this. This is not what you told us you were going to do. Do not do this. And the social worker, I'm sorry, sir. The police is telling me I have to do this. And they're calling for backup. I mean, all this chaos going on at two o'clock in the morning. My son starts realizing, you know, something, this commotion, something is not right. He starts crying. And my mom, at some point, she's like, what, what am I supposed to do? What can I do? So she gives him to the social worker and takes him to the car, to the social worker's car. He won't let her strap him in, of course. So my mom is strapping my son into the car seat, kicking and screaming at two o'clock in the morning. Social worker gives my mom her card. And she said, you can call this later this morning and we will tell you what to do next. And they drove off in the middle of the night, not telling us why, where, what they were doing to my son. So here we are at 10 o'clock in the morning, the next day in the hospital. My husband has been calling social services all morning. They won't answer. The supervisor won't answer. And we have no idea where my son is. And I'm just, we, we're in panic. We're like, what? This is unbelievable. What is going on? Yeah. So horrible. I start calling lawyers and he continues with social services. I mean, I had to call about 10 different lawyers before I finally got one that knew what the heck was going on and said that he could help me. So I get a hold of him. He tells me to go to his office that afternoon. I go see him at noon, and I'm still I'm still in disbelief. I'm like, this is some like I'm I'm laughing, I'm giggling when I'm with the the lawyer, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is some kind of joke. Like, where's my son, and where do I go get him? And he's like, sit down. I sit down because you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, they can't do this. Like, yes, they can. I'm like, what What happened to our constitution? Like what what happened into innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? Like what what what? And he said, This is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. They can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. And I'm like, I didn't do this. And he's like, I know. I believe you. Doesn't matter. Like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Like they like they can't they can't do this. And he's like, listen to me. What happened to your son was criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail and a hundred thousand dollar bail. If they decide to charge you, I'm like, I didn't do this. He's like, I believe you. I know. I believe you. doesn't matter. Okay. I can't walk into that courtroom and tell the judge to return these children to you. When you have a criminal record open against you, when you have a criminal investigation opened against you, they're not going to allow it. They're not going to give your kids back to you. If they're under two years old and nonverbal, they can be legally adopted by the foster family. If the case lasts longer than six months and they will make it last longer than six months. And my head is just spinning. I'm like, what, what the, what? I just went from criminal adoption, like no investigation, nothing? And he's like, no. So your saving grace is that your husband was out of state when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. Okay, our best bet is to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way the kids don't even risk going into foster care. And if the judge grants that, they're going to kick you out of the house. So I'm like, okay, so what are my choices really? Like you're telling me that if we go in there and fight for me being innocent, that I did not do this, they have no proof against me. They don't have to prove anything. They can just take away my kids. I guess they can. And if I don't, they're going to be adopted. Yes. Okay. So there's a no-brainer then. Yes, give them to to their father. I could care less what it says on paper. You know, and my husband, they're with their father. Give them to their father. He's like, but they're going to kick you out. And I don't know what visitation they're going to give you. I don't know what services they're going to make you do. And I'm like, you can do whatever the heck you want to me. Just leave my children alone. So I left his office, you know, signed the contract, their retainer. My husband had to get separate counsel. I mean, this is all within 12 hours. Both my children were wards of the state. 72 hours later is when we were going to have the hearing. And at this point, yes, he knew where my son was. He's like, yeah, I know where he is. He had them on speed dial already. I guess like, yes, my name is so-and-so. I'm representing so-and-so is her daughter, is her son's there. Like, yeah, he is. He's like, okay, uh, I'm going to talk to the caseworker. And he told me, he's like, I don't know what they're going to do. I can't promise you anything. I will try to let you, I'll try to get them to let you see your son. Because I couldn't even go to the shelter to see my son. So I go to the hospital, I tell my husband the deal. I mean, everybody is in pure disbelief that this is happening in this country. And we're worried, we're scared. We are praying, you know, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, God, you are not gonna let this happen. This is not gonna happen. You know, you are faithful. This is not gonna happen. Like, Lord, open those judges' ears, open that judge's eyes. I mean, this is not going to happen. So we're praying, we're stepping out in faith. We do go see my son at the shelter. And that was one of the most heartbreaking experiences I've ever had in my life. Okay, my son was 20 months old. They had taken him there overnight. And he was like a zombie. He wouldn't come close to me. He looked at us like, you know, like we were strangers. And at this point, we only spoke Portuguese with him. That was our main language at home. And they were speaking in English. We had to speak in English with him. I'm sitting down on the floor. I'm kneeling. I'm getting him to play with me. I'm getting him to loosen up. You know, the social is telling me, you know, he didn't sleep well last night. I'm like, well, duh, what do you expect? And he's not eating. And I'm like, yeah, what do you expect? <laughs> you know, but I'm just listening. and keeping it to myself and I'm playing with him and he's finally opening up to me. And the social worker tells me your time is up. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So my husband and I are there with my son and I'm telling him, you know, David, we love you. We will be back. You know, mommy will be back. I couldn't tell him when or what. And he is just clinging to my leg. You know, he's screaming, mommy, no, mommy, no, mommy, no. And I don't know. I mean, my husband and I holding hands, the social worker picks him up into her arms and he's just screaming, screaming for us. We turn around, we don't look back. And my husband and I are crying like two school children, you know, heading back to our car. And we are sobbing. I mean, we are crying and praying. And we're like, what is going on, God? Like, what are we supposed to do? What do we do? Again, you know, we just had our faith. Like, God is faithful. You know, we don't know what is going on. We don't know why this is happening. But God, you are faithful. We're preparing for the 72-hour hearing, which would be at this point two days later. My attorney told me to get as many character letters as I could during the weekend, you know, of people that have known me throughout my life doctors, coworkers, anybody. And in two days I was able to get 35 character letters. And you know, we talk about 40 miracles in 40 days. Like some of these people I hadn't spoken to in 30 years. Some of these people were the very same people who were at my father's inauguration in Brazil. And they knew me from the womb. And these people wrote character letters for me. And I was reading them, you know, and it brought me to tears as I was reading them. And I'm like, again, you know, who am I? that all these people are willing to put their lives on the line, are willing to put their word on the line for me. And again, God showed himself to me. You know, I would say that was one of the first miracles was during that weekend. So we go to the court and I have all these letters in hand. I have my lawyer there, the other attorneys there. And I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy, right? You know, Judge Judy is here. One side says one thing. The other side says one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and people go back and forth. And I'm sitting there, you know, and the judge is talking. And then all the lawyers start speaking. And I'm like, okay, when is it going to be my turn? Like, when is this judge going to ask me to stand up and tell me or ask me what happened? And again, I notice the nanny is not there. The police officers aren't there. The social workers aren't there. It seems like the only person on trial here is me. I'm the only person there. And next thing I know, I hear my name. And Ms. Bruno, do you understand? And I look at my lawyer. I'm like, yeah, my lawyer had just asked the judge to give sole custody to my husband. And he goes around the room. Anybody object? My husband's lawyer? No. My lawyer? No. Children's lawyer? No. Social services? Yes. And the judge is like, Why? Because we never spoke to the father. We never interviewed the father. We don't know whether he's fit or not. At that point, court goes into recess. So we all walk out and I'm there with my attorney. What the heck? Are they really? Is the judge really going to allow this? You know, and my my attorney's like, no, 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 no. Like he wasn't even home. He wasn't even at the crime scene. There is no, they have no standing whatsoever, right? To, To not give the children to their father. But he's like, I can't guarantee you anything. These people get away with everything. So he tells us to wait outside in the hallway and he goes into the courtroom and it's just the lawyers in there. And I don't know what he said in there, what he fought for, what he argued, but they asked us back into the room. Judge speaks. Okay, Miss Bruno, social services is overruled. You have 24 hours to vacate your premises. Children will be with their father and a caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court is adjourned. So I step out of that courtroom, again, with my mom, sobbing, me and my mom, you know, thinking about our prayers, like what happened, God, this was not supposed to happen. This is not what we prayed for. And my lawyer's like, I told you, this is what going to happen. I'm like, I know, I know, you know, but we still, it's still unbelievable that this is what's happening. I go home that day, I clean up everything out of my house. My lawyer's like, you don't leave one toothbrush in that house. If they find anything That is yours. They were going to use it against you. So you clear out everything, cleared out everything. Caseworker tells me I will get seven hours of monitored visitation with both my sons a week. And I was court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. And I'm just like, this is crazy. This is crazy. And I'm talking to my lawyer. I'm like, is this, he's like, you do whatever the heck they tell you to do. Okay, right now is not the time to fight. Okay, they have your children's lives in their hands. So you just shut up and do whatever it is they tell you to do. So I listened, you know, that's what I do. I go back to the hospital and this is 72 hours later. Again, another miracle. The doctors who thought my my son wasn't going to survive the next 48 hours. They had removed the coma. He was no longer in the medically induced coma. They removed his head covering and I saw him open his eyes. Oh, they asked me, praise God, praise God. They asked me if I wanted to hold him. You know, I hadn't held him for those 72 hours. And I held that baby, just cried, like he was alive. He was alive mm-hmm. and I knew he was going to be okay. You no, know, I didn't so care. I didn't care about anything at that point. He was going to be okay and he was feeding he was still on the feeding tube i was still pumping for him you know he was exclusively breastfed at that point i was still able to do it and my lawyer i'm like where the heck am i supposed to go right i don't my my mom i couldn't live with my mom they wouldn't let me be with my mom because she was part of the investigation i couldn't live with my husband cuz he now had the children i'm an only child my whole family's in brazil I'm like where the heck am i supposed to go and my attorney said well as long as your your son is in the hospital you could sleep in the hospital. It's a monitored facility. They can't kick you out. So like, okay, you know, so move over to the hospital. I slept there for about four days. My mom had gone to our church that we'd been attending for about six years at that point and spoke with the pastor's wife. Our pastor at that point was in Cambridge writing a book. So he wasn't there, but his wife was there. And my mom explained the whole situation and said, can you please go to the hospital and pray for Rachel and the family. And she's like, oh, absolutely. So she shows up one night after visiting hours and you know, it all made us laugh. She had a clergy badge on, (laughs) so she (laughs) could go in after visiting hours. And you know, she saw the state that my son was in. She hugged me. We just cried together. We prayed for him. Third miracle. She looks at me and she said, I've been praying. And God told me you're coming home with me. And I'm just speechless. Like, thank you. You know, like I said, I've been going to this church for six years. I knew them on a high by basis, you know, after church. But we would not consider ourselves intimate friends or close friends that you would invite somebody to come live with you. So again, God showed up in the craziest ways, you know, ways that you really don't think of, you know, the little things, right? You know, it's not a big deal for me to be sleeping in the hospital. I had a roof over my head but he put this person in my path and I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point in time. She shared all her stories. You know, I had no idea that her as a mother as well, she had had miscarriages. She had had stillbirths. Her child has had brain trauma and she's just, you know, she completely understood me everything that I was going through and the unknowns and the injustice. And she prayed with me. She cried with me. She laughed with me. I mean, all that time, right? And as I'm going to the child abuse classes, I'm like, what the heck am I going to do in a child abuse class? Thinking I'm going to be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, tattooed, piercing, you know, crazy people. (laughs) And that is, you know, my own bias. I get in there and everybody was in the same boat that I was. I'm listening to people's stories and accidents in the playground. Kid fell off the swing, broken arm, child abuse. Somebody slipped in the bathtub, child broke her leg, child abuse. A teenager was posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. Father disciplines the daughter, child abuse. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, why? 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 You know, because on the news, we hear so many real cases of child abuse where the children end up dead and social services never did anything. And I'm like, this does not make sense, right? What the heck is going on here? And I'm listening to the stories and even the facilitators who do the child abuse classes, who do the parenting classes, they were, like, they were on board knowing that this is really a big scheme. You know, they would tell us what to do. They would tell us what motions to file. When we tell them what the doctor that turned us in was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know her. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they have this case against her. They have this case against him. Like they knew everything. And I'm like, you, you guys know this? And they're like, yeah, unfortunately, this is the way the system works. I'm like, this is, this is crazy, crazy. So, you know, I'm listening to this, I go home and one day somebody very close to me called me and she said, Rachel, you know, I've been praying and one word keeps coming to my mind and that word is repent. And I'm like, okay, repent, Rachel. Okay. And at that point, I took it, you know, I remember Job's friends, like, you must Mm -hmm. have done something to deserve this. (laughs) So you must repent. Right. That's the way I took it. I'm like, okay. You know, so I prayed that night with God. I'm like, okay, God, who sent? Right. That this child was born blind, remembering, again, another parable. You know, again, all these little stories that I learned from childhood keep popping into my head. Yeah. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit, again. Said, no one, no one, my daughter. No, what you're witnessing right now is the fallen world we live in. Yes. It's the fallen world. It's the evil world. What you're witnessing is the destruction of the family. And that is what the devil has been trying to do from the moment I created the family. And then again, I'm remembering Cain and Abel. Oh yeah, you know, husband and wife, everybody against each other. And the devil hasn't stopped since it began. You know, God created the family and it's the foundation of everything, right? From this point forward, it's your family. And the spirit revealing to me, your story is going to help other families. Your suffering is not going to be in vain. Okay, this is going to be for a short period of time. Okay, fear not. I've already taken care of the house, the education and the children. Those were the three things he told me. And I'm like, whoa, (sighs) okay, God, that point on, I would consider that another miracle, another shift in perspective. My mind completely shifted from that point, from me worrying about myself and worrying about my family and worrying about what the heck was going to go on with me, to me praying for all those families and all those children that were in that child abuse class with me who did not know God, who did not have the faith, who did not have the family support, who really, I mean, how can you not go crazy when the system is taking away your children, and telling you that you are the problem, that you're the guilty one when you know you're not. So I just praise God. I was praising God at that moment that He put me in that child abuse class, that He put me in the situation. And I'm like, okay, God, here I am. You know, use me. If even the jail thing was still on the line, like if there's somebody in jail who needs to hear the good news, who needs to hear about the gospel who needs to share, needs to hear from me, God, I'm here. You know, whatever it is, I'm here. And it sounds crazy, right? To people who don't know God, to people who don't know faith. I felt so much joy and such relief from that. (laughs) Yes.
2: Oh, what a miracle that
0: was. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And, you know, you're thanking God. You know, I remember, yeah, again, you, remember? <laughs> you remember Paul, right? You remember all these people that God used in these tragedies and these difficult and these horrific examples in the Bible. And again, fall to my, lee- my knees, you know, who am I to be a Paul, to be Abraham, to be, you know, all these people who God used. So it was crazy, right? It was a crazy revelation, a crazy experience I had that night. And I just went on. The following day, went to go visit my hus- my son in the hospital. He was still in the hospital. And every day, one song would come on. I didn't program it. You know, it was on my iPod there, connected to my car, and the same song played every day. And I'm like, what? You know, something. This thing broken? You know. Then I, but I stopped and I paid attention to the lyrics for the first time. I paid attention to the lyrics. And the song is called um, "All I Once Held Dear." And that the melody, right, of the song is all I once held dear, placed my life upon all the world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I now count as lost compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're my best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. And again, another epiphany, another miracle at that point. I'm like, oh my God. This is it. You know, this is why this is happening. Like, it's to know you, to know your power, to know your pain, Lord, to know your pain. You went through this, like you suffered. If the son of God went through all this injustice, then why the heck not me? So sharing that solidarity, sharing that spirit, even pain to know you in your suffering that was in the song. And I'm just crying driving the car, And I'm like, amen, you know, and I'm just praising God. I'm crying and I'm praising. And just these little things, every other day, every little thing carrying me through this process. And it was 40 days and 40 nights. So that is why the story is called 40 Miracles in 40 Days. On the 40th day, we had a hearing. And my attorney tells me at that point, you know, don't bother coming to court today. The criminal investigation is still open. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. So don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I call my husband. I say, he's telling us not to go. And my husband says, I don't care what he says. We're going. I'm like, okay. So we go to the courtroom or to the courthouse and we're sitting outside. About an hour and a half later, my attorney calls me. He's like, where are you? At the courthouse. I'm like, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. Then he hangs up on me. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So start texting everybody. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Everybody just start praying. (laughs) So he comes in, walking down the hallway. I go hug him. And he's like, don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) He goes into the courtroom. About an hour, comes back with a stack of papers. And he's like, initial this, sign this, crosses something out, initial this, sign this. And I have no idea what I'm signing what I'm initially, I'm just trusting God and my attorney at that point. And he's coming in and out, in and out, in and out. It goes on for probably about three hours, coming in and out, in and out, in and out. I never stepped foot in that courtroom. To this day, I never stepped foot in that courtroom to tell the judge what actually happened. (laughs) But he comes out with a huge stack of papers. He's like, okay, if you're willing to sign this document the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this this is just the timeline of the events, it's the social workers narrative, it's the police investigation, it's the medical records and all that stuff, then they're willing to let you go home today. At this point, if they had told me to cut my leg off, I would have done it, right? I just wanted to be home with my children, with my babies. And I signed the, the, the report and he told me, like, I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Praise God. Yes. Amen. Praise God. And another miracle. Another <laughs> miracle. And my family and I just, you know, group hugged at that point. Oh <laughs> my gosh, Rachel. It was crazy. And I went home that day. And I mean, you know, it was a miracle. It was praise God. Hallelujah. But that was just the beginning of another yes, battle,
2: right? Yes. Another battle yes. that we were going to face. <laughs> yes. But, you know, God has continued to work through your story. And I wish yes. we could go on and on and on because you could probably have four or five different episodes yes. of you telling your story. This is so amazing and yes. so inspiring and God glorifying. And I know the outcome. You did win a court case, right? I yes. mean- of yeah. like
0: 1.5 million or something like that. 1.5 million dollars. So after they let me go home, we still, I still had to finish what they call the services. So the childcare yeah. classes, the parenting, the all that stuff I had to finish. The social worker continued to come to our house once a month for six months, and at the end of the six months, then they decided to close the case. But following that, I contacted a civil rights attorney because I just had that. In my stomach, I'm like, I cannot be quiet, right? I have to do something about this. So the civil rights attorney took our case, we sued the hospital, we sued LA County, we sued Orange County, we sued the detectives, we sued the social workers, I mean, there was about 14 different defendants in our case. And we did the depositions. I mean, it was crazy of them admitting that they did it without a warrant, they took our children without a warrant. They admitted that there was no exigent circumstances, they admitted everything. It was crazy. So at the end of all the depositions, before trial, we already had our trial date scheduled for June 9th, 2019. We settled in December 8th of 2018 for the $1.49 million. And it was really hard, really hard to settle. As crazy as that sounds, it is a lot of money. But if you you know, we don't do this for the money. And I felt like a sellout, honestly. I'm like, I don't care if I win $1 at trial. I want these people held accountable. I want a jury to see this. You know, I want a judge to see this. I want cross-examination, you know, and I'm telling all this to my attorney. And he's like, I understand. I completely understand. And it's not to say your case doesn't have merit or that you will lose. But juries are finicky, right? And human beings are, you know, weird. (laughs) And it's a toss-up. Like we really Mm -hmm. don't know what a jury is going to decide. And it's really hard to convince people that social workers, police officers, doctors, these are supposed to be the good guys. It's really hard to convince people that these people did this, right? So if based on my experience and as your counsel, I will advise you to take this, nay, take the settlement, close this chapter in your life, because now you will be able to speak about it. You will be able to advocate about it. If we go to trial, even if you win, they're going to appeal it. We're going to be on this all over again for the next five years. So think about the emotional toll, the financial toll that it's going to take upon you and your family. So after a lot of prayer and with my husband, we're like, okay, Lord, you know, when this all started, all we wanted was a clean financial slate because it did put us yeah. into debt. You know, we oh, were in the yeah. process of buying a house and I'm like, okay, God, you know, you, you gave us what we wanted, right? And more. So help us accept this, you know, guard our hearts, and prepare us for the next steps. So we settled, and here we are. (laughs) And God is using you, and you've been sharing your
2: story, and you've got an advocacy ministry, and you're looking at moving forward with a 501c3, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, Tell us just kind of what the next step is now, Rachel, Uh, in just a few words, because we do have to close the show, Mm -hmm. um, but kind of, you know, you've been so brave and I wish you such great success in all that you're doing. And I know you're putting God on the throne and in step with what he wants and you guys are honoring God and what he's doing and wanting to help others so they don't fall into this trap, but yet hold accountability and, you know, giving people and others wisdom on how to maneuver and navigate through this because it's corruption. I mean, you're, you're fighting corruption, you're fighting, uh, you know, uh, just a, a whole uh, process, a process, you know, that had been in place. And so hopefully through what you encountered and what you are doing, that now will improve for others or make others aware. So as we close out the show, can you just share kind of your next steps and any, you know, resources um, that, you know, listeners can find that may be experiencing what you are going through?
0: Yes. So, you know, I have my own website. You can go to www.rachelbruno.com. And if you subscribe to my email list, which I will keep, you know, updating on what's going on, the most recent events, you can download a free PDF, which I came up with, you know, the five things that I learned during this process. And if CPS ever comes knocking out your door, what you should and should not do. So I think that's a really helpful resource. You know, if I had known then what I know now, that's what I would do. And in a dream scenario, you know, I would love to reach legislators, lawmakers, people up that are supposed to be representing us, right? Who we elected, this legislation needs to change. You know, we need to defund what is called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which was signed in Congress in 1993. And it basically gives states financial incentive for the children who are in foster care. So the more children that are in foster care, the more federal funding the states receive. The states receive anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000 per child per month. And currently there's over 430,000 children in foster care. Okay. And I want people to understand, especially Christians, you know, because we've learned throughout the years that foster care is a good thing, that we're helping these children, that adoption is a good thing. And I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying that some children do, you know, don't need the intervention. Some really do, but realize that the government has absolutely no incentive whatsoever To reunify the families. They don't get any money if the family is reunified. And the social workers, you know, they have to justify their jobs basically, because if the federal funding gets cut, guess what happens, right? There's going to be layoffs. There's going to be a lot of cutbacks. And, you know, I'm sorry. Of course, they don't want to lose their jobs, but take everything they say with a grain of salt. Okay. Can you imagine what they would say about my family or about my case to a potential foster family? And there's no way that this foster family can bet it. So if you really want to help a struggling family, if you want to really help a struggling mom, single mom, don't do it through law enforcement, please. Okay, because once the government and the law enforcement gets involved, you have lost complete control of the situation. And chances are that that child, that mother will never see their family again. So I urge you to contact nonprofit organizations, contact the church, do it yourself. Okay yeah. don't try to get law enforcement involved. And well, that's what I-, I Yeah,
2: that's great. Rachel and I thank you for taking the time and sharing this and also putting a plug in here and there on the miracle side and how your life transformed as a result of going through this and how your faith was transformed, and how your relationship with God, and I'm sure relationship with your husband, and your calling, and your purpose, and all those things. I mean, I'm assuming too, that you probably had to go through some uh, trauma counseling. Having gone through that, I mean, and you know, God in his graciousness, he brought that pastor's wife to you, to minister to you, to help you through. So there's, you know, friends, we just, this story is so inspiring and God glorifying and there's so much goodness that comes from it. Rachel, it's a hard story. Mm-hmm. It's a hard story to listen to, mm-hmm. but I look at you now, I hear what God has done, his faithfulness. I see how passionate you are where you're at. I'm sure your boys are thriving are. through mm-hmm. this. Now you have empathy. Now you you know, can be an advocate. You can do all those things to help America's family, yes. um, mm-hmm. you know, and I've had other Christian friends who have dealt with some of what you dealt with, but in different ways. Yeah. So I do believe there is this plot of the enemy to come at our families. Yes. And so I am really looking forward to seeing the continuation of your story Rachel, it's been a blessing to have you on the show and friends. I will have her episode up and available on our website and more information. You can listen to this episode on Eternity Ready Radio next Tuesday um, from 7 to 8 Central Time and on your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Um, we on Pandora. Um, we're on Apple, we're on Google, we're on Podchaser, Podacy. You can go on to our website. And, friends, please consider a monthly donation um, or sponsoring one of our God Stories like Rachel's. And you can um, make your tax deductible donation on our website at www.alteredstories.org. Um, I also, friends, want to hear your feedback on Rachel's story. She would want to hear your feedback. So, do Take the opportunity. If your faith has been strengthened, your life has been transformed from, from what you've heard today or other stories, I'd love to hear from you. Until the next show, be heard and be healed.
1: Altered Stories Ministry is a faith based, nonprofit, and women's evangelistic storytelling ministry located in Overland Park, Kansas. If you enjoyed listening to today's story, your family and friends would probably benefit from hearing how God works in the lives of women all over the world, too. So please subscribe to our show and share the link to this podcast. Share it on your social media. We also welcome your valued feedback on our stories.